The sun had set. The great shadows came striding over the forest in the weird twilight of a late summer day. I saw the path ahead glide on among the mighty trees and disappear, and I shuddered and glanced fearfully over my shoulder. Miles behind lay the nearest village, miles ahead the next. I looked to left and to right as I strode on, and anon I looked behind me, and anon I stopped short, grasping my rapier as a breaking twig betokened the going of some small beast, or was it a beast? But the path led on, and I followed, because forsooth I had naught else to do. As I went, I bethought me, my own thoughts will rout me, if I be not aware. What is there in this forest except perhaps the creatures that roam it, deer and the like? Hush, the foolish legend of those villagers. And so I went, and the twilight faded into dusk. Stars began to blink, and the leaves of the trees murmured in the faint breeze. And then I stopped short, my sword leaping to my hand, for just ahead, around a curve of the path, someone was singing. The words I could not distinguish, but the accent was strange, almost barbaric. I stepped behind a great tree, and the cold sweat beat through my forehead. Then the singer came in sight, a tall, thin man, vague in the twilight. I shrugged my shoulders, a man I did not fear. I sprang out, my point raised. Stand! He showed no surprise. I prithee handle thy blade with care, friend, he said. Somewhat ashamed, I lowered my sword. I am new to this forest, I quoth apologetically. I heard talk of bandits. I crave pardon where, where lies the road to Villafir. Corblu, you've missed it, he answered. You should have branched off to the right some distance back. I am going there myself. If you may abide my company, I will direct you. I hesitated. Yet why should I hesitate? Why certainly. My name is De Montour of Normandy, and I am Carolus Le Loup. No, I started back. He looked at me in astonishment. Pardon, said I. The name is strange. Does not loop mean wolf? My family were always great hunters, he answered. He did not offer his hand. You will pardon my staring, said I, as we walked down the path, but I can hardly see your face in the dusk. I sensed that he was laughing, though he made no sound. It is little to look upon, he answered. I stepped closer, then leaped away, my hair bristling. A mask, I exclaimed. Why do you wear a mask, Masoo? It is a vow, he exclaimed. I'm fleeing a pack of hounds. I vowed that if I escaped, I would wear a mask for a certain time. Hounds, monsieur? Wolves, he answered quickly. I said wolves. We walked in silence for a while, and then my companion said, I'm surprised that you walk these woods by night. Few people come these ways, even in the day. I am in haste to reach the border, I answered. A treaty has been signed with the French, and the Duke of Burgundy should know of it. The people at the village sought to dissuade me. They spoke of a wolf that was purported to roam these woods. Here the path branches to Villaferre, said he, and I saw a narrow, crooked path that I had not seen when I passed it before. It led in amidst the darkness of the trees. I shuddered. You wish to return to the village? No, I exclaimed. No, no. Lead on. So narrow was the path that we walked, single file, he leading. I looked well at him. He was taller, much taller than I, and thin, wiry. He was dressed in a costume that smacked of Spain. A long rapier swung at his hip. He walked with long, easy strides, noiselessly. Then he began to talk of travel and adventure. 
He spoke of many lands and seas he had seen and many strange things. So we talked and went farther and farther into the forest. I presumed that he was French, yet he had a very strange accent that was neither French nor Spanish nor English, not like any language I had ever heard. Some words he slurred strangely, and some he could not pronounce at all. This path is often used, is it? I asked. Not by many, he answered and laughed silently. I shuddered. It was very dark, and the leaves whispered together among the branches. A fiend haunts this forest, I said. So the peasants say, he answered. But I have roamed it oft and have never seen his face. Then he began to speak of strange creatures of darkness, and the moon rose, and shadows glided among the trees. He looked up at the moon. Haste, said he. We must reach our destination before the moon reaches her zenith. We hurried along the trail. They say, said I, that a werewolf haunts these woodlands. It might be, said he, and we argued much upon the subject. The old women say, said he, that if a werewolf is slain while a wolf, then he's slain. But if he is slain as a man, then his half-soul will haunt his slayer forever. But haste thee, the moon nears her zenith. We came into a small moonlit glade, and the stranger stopped. Let us pause a while, said he. Nay, let us be gone, I urged. I like not this place. He laughed without sound. Why, said he, this is a fair glade, as good as a banquet hall it is, and many times have I feasted here. Ha ha ha, look ye, I will show you a dance. And he began bounding here and there, anon flinging back his head and laughing silently. Thought I this man is mad. As he danced his weird dance, I looked about me. The trail went not on, but stopped in the glade. Come, said I, we must on. Do you not smell the rank, hairy scent that hovers about the glade? Wolves den here. Perhaps they are about us, and are gliding upon us even now. He dropped upon all fours, bounded higher than my head, and came toward me with a strange, slinking motion. That dance is called the Dance of the Wolf, said he, and my hair bristled. Keep off. I stepped back, and with a screeching that set the echoes shuddering, he leaped for me and through a sword hung in his belt, he did not draw it. My rapier was half out when he grasped my arm, and flung me headlong. I dragged him with me, and we struck the ground together. Wrenching a hand free, I jerked off the mask. A shriek of horror broke my lips. Beast's eyes glittered beneath that mask. White fangs flashed in the moonlight. The face was that of a wolf. In an instant, those fangs were at my throat. Taloned hands tore the sword from my grasp. I beat at that horrible face with my clenched fist, but his jaws were fashioned on my shoulder and his talons tore at my throat. Then I was on my back, the world fading. Blindly I struck out. My hand dropped and closed automatically about the hilt of my dagger, which I had been unable to get at. I drew and stabbed. A terrible, half-bestial bellowing screech. Then I reeled to my feet, free. At my feet lay the wolf. I stopped, raised the dagger, then paused, looked up. The moon hovered close to her zenith. If I slew the thing as a man, its frightful spirit would haunt me forever. I sat down waiting. The thing watched me with flaming wolf eyes. The long, wiry limbs seemed to shrink, to crook. Hair seemed to grow upon them. Fearing madness, I snatched up the thing's own sword and hacked it to pieces. Then I flung the sword away and fled. All were crowding around M. Bermutier, the judge, who was giving his opinion about the St. Cloud mystery. For a month, this inexplicable crime had been the talk of Paris. Nobody could make head or tail of it. 
Ember Mutier, standing with his back to the fireplace, was talking, citing the evidence, discussing the various theories, but arriving at no conclusion. Some women had risen in order to get nearer to him, and were standing with their eyes fastened on the clean-shaven face of the judge, who was saying such weighty things. They were shaking and trembling, moved by fear and curiosity, and by the eager and insatiable desire for the horrible which haunts the soul of every woman. One of them, paler than the others, said during a pause, It's terrible. It verges on the supernatural. The truth will never be known. The judge turned to her. True, madame. It is likely that the actual facts will never be discovered. As for the word supernatural, which you have just used, it has nothing to do with the matter. We are in the presence of very cleverly conceived and executed crime, so well enshrouded in mystery that we cannot disentangle it from the involved circumstances which surround it. But once, I had to take charge of an affair in which the uncanny seemed to play a part. In fact, the case became so confused that it had to be given up. Several women exclaimed at once, Oh, tell us about it. M. Bermutier smiled in a dignified manner, as a judge should, and went on. Do not think, however, that I, for one minute, ascribed anything in the case to supernatural influences. I believe only in normal causes. But if instead of using the word supernatural to express what we do not understand, we were simply to make use of the word inexplicable, it would be much better. At any rate, in the affair of which I am about to tell you, it is especially the surrounding, preliminary circumstances which impressed me. Here are the facts. I was at that time a judge at Hacio, a little white city on the edge of a bay, which is surrounded by high mountains. The majority of the cases which came up before me concerned vendettas. There are some that are superb, dramatic, ferocious, heroic. We find they're the most beautiful causes for revenge, of which one could dream. Enmities hundreds of years old, quieted for a time but never extinguished. Abominable stratagems, murders, becoming massacres, and almost deeds of glory. For two years I heard of nothing but the price of blood, of this terrible Corsican prejudice, which compels revenge for insults meted out to the offending person and all his descendants and relatives. I had seen old men, children, cousins murdered, my head was full of these stories. One day I learned that an Englishman had just hired a little villa at the end of the bay for several years. He had brought with him a French servant who he had engaged on the way at Marcella's. Soon this peculiar person, living alone, only going out to hunt and fish, aroused a widespread interest. He never spoke to anyone, never went to the town, and every morning he would practice for an hour or so with his revolver and rifle. Legends were built up around him. It was said that he was some high personage fleeing from his fatherland for political reasons. Then it was affirmed that he was in hiding after having committed some abominable crime. Some particularly horrible circumstances were even mentioned. In my judicial position, I thought it necessary to get some information about this man, but it was impossible to learn anything. He called himself Sir John Rowell. I therefore had to be satisfied with watching him as closely as I could but I could see nothing suspicious about his actions. However, as rumors about him were growing and becoming more widespread, I decided to try to see this stranger myself, and I began to hunt reg regularly in the neighborhood of his grounds. For a long time, I watched without finding an opportunity. At last, it came to me in the shape of a partridge, which I shot and killed right in front of the Englishman. My dog fetched it for me, but taking the bird, I went at once to Sir John Rowell, and begging his pardon, asked him to accept it. He was a big man with red hair and beard, 
very tall, very broad, kind of calm and polite Hercules. He had nothing of the so-called British stiffness, and in a broad English accent he thanked me warmly for my attention. At the end of a month, we had five or six conversations. One night at last, as I was passing before his door, I saw him in the garden, seated astride a chair, smoking his pipe. I bowed and he invited me to come in and have a glass of beer. I needed no urging. He received me with the most punticulous English courtesy, sang the praises of France and of Corsica, and declared that he was quite in love with this country. Then with great caution and under the guise of a vivid interest, I asked him a few questions about his life and his plans. He answered without embarrassment, telling me that he had traveled a great deal in Africa, in the Indies, in America. He added laughing, I had many adventures. Then I turned the conversation on hunting, and he gave me the most curious detail on hunting the hippopotamus, the tiger, the elephant, and even the gorilla. I said, are all these animals dangerous? He smiled, oh no, man is the worst, and he laughed a good broad laugh, the wholesome laugh of a contented Englishman. I have also frequently been man-hunting. Then he began to talk about weapons, and he invited me to come in and see different makes of guns. His parlor was draped in black, black silk embroidered in gold. Big yellow flowers, as, as brilliant as fire, were worked on the dark material. He said, it is a Japanese material, but in the middle of the widest panel a strange thing attracted my attention. A black object stood out against a square of red velvet. I went up to it. It was a hand, a human hand. Not the clean white hand of a skeleton, but a dried black hand with yellow nails, the muscles exposed and traces of old blood on the bones, which were cut off as clean as though it had been chopped off with an axe, near the middle of the forearm. Around the wrist, an enormous iron chain riveted and soldered to this unclean member, fastened it to the wall by a ring strong enough to hold an elephant in leash. I asked, what is that? The Englishman answered quietly, this is my best enemy. It comes from America, too. The bones were severed by a sword and the skin cut off with a sharp stone and dried in the sun for a week. I touched these human remains, which must have belonged to a giant. The uncommonly long fingers were attached by enormous tendons, which still had pieces of skin hanging to them in places. His hand was terrible to see. It made one think of some savage vengeance. I said this, this man must have been very strong. The Englishman answered quietly, Yes, but I was stronger than he. I put on the chain to hold him. I thought that he was joking, I said. The chain is useless now. The hand won't run away. Sir John Rowell answered seriously. It always wants to go away. The chain is needed. I glanced at him quickly, questioning his face, and I asked myself, is he an insane man or a practical joker? But his face remained inscrutable, calm and friendly. I turned to other subject and admired his rifles. However, I noticed that he kept three loaded revolvers in the room as though constantly in fear of some attack. I paid him several calls, then I did not go any more. People had become used to his presence. Everybody had lost interest in him. A whole year rolled by. One morning, toward the end of November, my servant awoke me and announced that Sir John Rowell had been murdered during the night. Half an hour later, I entered the Englishman's house, together with the police commissioner and the captain of the gendarmes. The servant, bewildered and in despair, was crying before the door. At first, I suspected this man, but he was innocent. The guilty party could never be found. On entering Sir John's parlor, I noticed the body stretched out on its back in the middle of the room. His vest was torn. The sleeve of his jacket had been pulled off. Everything pointed to a violent struggle. The Englishman had been strangled. His face was black, swollen and frightful, and seemed to express a terrible fear. He held something between his teeth 
and his neck pierced by five or six holes, which looked as though they had been made by some iron instrument. It was covered with blood. A physician joined us. He examined the finger marks on the neck for a long time, and then made his strange announcement. It looks as though he had been strangled by a skeleton. A cold chill seemed to run down my back, and I looked over to where I had formerly seen the terrible hand. It was no longer there. The chain was hanging down broken. I bent over the dead man, and in his contracted mouth, I found one of the fingers of this vanished hand, cut or rather sawed off by the teeth down to the second knuckle. Then the investigation began. Nothing could be discovered. No door, window, or piece of furniture had been forced. The two watchdogs had not been aroused from their sleep. Here, in a few words, is the testimony of the servant. For a month, his master had seemed excited. He had received many letters, which he would immediately burn. Often in a fit of passion, which approached madness, he had taken a switch and struck wildly at this dried hand riveted to the wall, which had disappeared. No one knows how. At the very hour of the crime, he would go to bed very late and carefully lock himself in. He always kept weapons within reach. Often at night, he would talk loudly as though he were quarreling with someone. That night, somehow, he had made no noise. It was only on going to open the window that the servant had found Sir John murdered. He suspected no one. I communicated that I knew of the dead man to the judges and the public officials throughout the whole island. A minute investigation was carried on. Nothing could be found out. One night, about three months after the crime, I had a terrible nightmare. I seemed to see the horrible hand running over my curtains and walls like an immense scorpion or spider. Three times I awoke. Three times I went to sleep again. Three times I saw the hideous object galloping around my room and moving its fingers like legs. The following day the hand was brought me, found in the cemetery on the grave of Sir John Rowell, who had been buried there. We had been unable to find his family. The first finger was missing. Ladies, there is my story. I know nothing more. The woman deeply stirred. One of them exclaimed, but that is neither a climax nor explanation. You will be un unable to sleep unless you give us your opinion of what had occurred. The judge smiled severely. Oh, ladies, I shall certainly spoil your terrible dreams. I simply believe that the legitimate owner of the hand was not dead, but he came to get it with his remaining one. But I don't know how. It was a kind of vendetta. One of the women murdered. No, it can't be that. And the judge, still smiling, said, Didn't I tell you that my explanation would not satisfy you? A Haunted House by Virginia Woolf Whatever hour you woke, there was a door shutting from room to room. They went hand in hand, lifting here, opening there, making sure, a ghostly couple. Here we left it, she said, and he added, Oh, but here, Tool, it's upstairs, she murmured, and in the garden, he whispered. Quietly, they said, we shall wake them. But it wasn't that you woke us. Oh, no, they're looking for it. They're drawing the curtain, one might say, and so read on a page or two. Now they've found it. One would be certain, stopping the pencil on the margin, and then tired of reading, one might rise and see for oneself, the house all empty, the doors standing open, only the wood pigeons bubbling with content, and a hum of the threshing machine sounding from the farm. What did I come in here for? What did I want to find? My hands were empty. Perhaps it's upstairs then. Apples were in the loft, and so down again, the garden still as ever. Only the book had slipped into the grass. They had found it in the drawing room, not that one could ever see them. The window panes reflected apples, reflected roses. All the leaves were green in the glass. If they moved in the drawing room, the apple only turned its yellow side. 
Yet the moment after, if the door was open, spread about the floor, hung upon the wall, pendant from the ceiling, what? My hands were empty, the shadow of a thrush crossed the carpet, in the deepest wells of silence, the wood pigeon drew its bubble of sound, safe, 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 the pulse of the house beat softly, the treasure buried the room, the pulse stopped short, oh was that the buried treasure, a moment later the light had faded, out in the garden then, but the trees spun darkness for a wandering beam of sun, so fine, so rare, coolly sunk beneath the surface, the beam I sought always, burned behind the glass. Death was the glass, death was between us, coming to the woman first, hundreds of years ago, leaving the house, sealing all the windows. The rooms were darkened, he left it, left her, went north, went east, saw the stars turned in the southern sky, sought the house, found it dropped beneath the down. Safe, 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 pulsed the house beat gladly, the treasure year. The wind roars up the avenue, trees stoop and bend this way, and that, moonbeams splash and spill wildly in the rain, but the beam of the lamp falls straight from the window, the candle burns stiff and still, wandering through the house, opening the window, whispering not to wake us, the ghostly couple seek their joy, here we slept, she says, and he adds kisses without number, waking in the morning, silver between the tree, upstairs, in the garden, and summer came, in winter, in winter snow time, the doors go shutting far in the distance, gently knocking like the pulse of a heart. Nearer they come, cease at the doorway, the wind falls, the rain slides silver down the glass, our eyes darken, we hear no steps behind us, we see no lady spread her ghostly cloak, his hands shield the lantern, look he breathes, sound asleep, love upon their lips, stooping, holding their silver lamp above us, long they look and deeply, long they pause, the wind drives straightly, the flames stoop slightly, wild beams of moonlight cross both floor and wall, and meeting stain the faces bent, the faces pondering, the faces that search the sleepers and seek their hidden joy, safe, 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 the heart of the house beats proudly, long years, he sighs, again you found me, here she murmurs, sleeping in the garden, reading, laughing, rolling apples in the loft, here we left our treasure, stooping, her light lifts the lids upon my eyes, safe, 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 the pulse of the house beats wildly, waking, I cry, oh, is this your buried treasure, the light in the heart?